Thank you, Amy. Um, this month we're looking at uh, kingdom. Uh, we're looking at kingdom and non-kingdom life and what that looks like. What does it look like to live a life as a kingdom of God person? In Luke 17, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, and he says it is already here because Christ has come, and it is also still coming when the Son of Man returns in judgment. So what does a kingdom person look like? How do they think? What brings them joy in life? And Jesus gives two parables, an illustration, and two real events take place to show us what kingdom life is. Last week we saw that it is vital to know the character of God, that He is not like the unjust judge in the parable, that His character is just. He hears the cries of his people, and though it may feel like his delay is long, it is all in his timing, and he has a plan and a purpose. And so it is important that we always pray and not give up. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Trust that what he accomplished in his death and in his resurrection is enough. I do want to clarify something I said uh, last week about not nagging God the way the widow did. Please don't hear me say, don't be persistent in prayer. That's not what I'm saying. When, what I mean by not pestering God or nagging God is that you pester and nag someone who uh, doesn't want to help you, Right? You pester and you nag an unmerciful person. You pester and you nag someone who is unwilling to hear you. What we want is to align our will with God's will, and God is merciful, and He hears us, and He wants to hear from us. Therefore, you are persistent in prayer to the one who listens, who has an ear, and then we wait for his perfect timing for answers to prayers. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, my prayer is that you would make the comfortable uncomfortable this morning. And that you would bring comfort to the afflicted and the distraught and the downcast. Father, let the beauty of the gospel that is put forth in this story stir each and every one of us. Let no one walk out of this place today without a greater appreciation for Christ and what he has done. And as Nick prayed, that no one would walk out of this place not having put their trust in Him. Walk out of this place continuing to put trust in self. For all we have and all that we are is because of You. Father, would You do that this morning? We pray this in Christ's name. 
Amen. So this week, we're looking at a second parable in Luke chapter 18 that Jesus gives us about two men with two prayers. Uh, I remember being asked this question uh, when I was in school, and I thought it was applicable to our passage today. Don't read too much into this. Just take it for what it's worth. There is an election coming up, and you have to pick a candidate. Which of these candidates do you vote for? Candidate A, try and remember these, candidate A. Candidate A associates with crooked politicians, consults with astrologists, he's had two mistresses, he also chain smokes and drinks eight to ten martinis a day. Who still drinks martinis? (laughs) Candidate B. Candidate B was kicked out of office twice sleeps until noon, used opium in college, and drinks a quart of whiskey every evening. This is kind of just sounding like any candidate. (laughs) Okay, that's B. Candidate C, he is a decorated war hero. He is a vegetarian. He does not smoke. He drinks an occasional beer and never cheated on his wife. Okay, do you have an idea of who you would vote for? Candidate A is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Candidate B was Winston Churchill. And candidate C is Adolf Hitler. I will take it by your groaning that you find this shocking, which was the whole point. This is what Jesus was doing when he told this parable. Just as the parable of the persistent widow was shocking that we looked at last week, seeing that widows were always mistreated and rarely received justice. But this one, I think, would have been more shocking. And so Luke writes, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. While we assume he's talking about the Pharisees here, or to the Pharisees, and I think that probably is the case in some sense. It doesn't say that exclusively. I know the example of the prayer of the person is a Pharisee, but it doesn't say, and he looked to the Pharisees and gave this example. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Now, for us today, that can look a lot of different ways, a lot of different ways. That could be those who were well-off and comfortable and saw that as a blessing from God and thought it was a sign of His happiness with us. And so they looked down on those with less as a sign of God's discontentment with them. It could be those without much and saw that as noble and righteous because they weren't tied to possessions and things. And that is what made them righteous. And so they looked down on those with more as arrogant and materialistic. So before we jump to conclusions and put ourselves in a particular camp as the the righteous one in this parable, let's be reminded of what it is that Jesus is saying about righteousness. 
I'm sure that there were some disciples who were standing there who thought they were righteous because they were people who had some connection with Jesus. These could even be some of the ones who were there in John chapter 6 when Jesus talks about eating of my flesh and drinking of my blood, and they said, this is a hard teaching, and they disappeared. There are many, many, many who walk into churches on Sunday morning who think they are righteous because they walk into churches on Sunday morning. That is not what makes a person righteous. That is not what justifies a person. That is not what makes us a a person, a kingdom person. Let's look at our two men in this parable. First, the Pharisee. Again, we are at a disadvantage in that all of our lives we have seen the Pharisee as wicked and evil the sort of stormtroopers, so to speak, of the New Testament. There's a Star Wars analogy for you, Star Wars people. <laughs> well, I have that, but, uh, but we have to understand the way that they were viewed in that day. People would have thought actually the exact opposite. The Pharisee was a, a, a devout member of his church. He was a Bible scholar. He would have had notes in the margins. He would have had notes even in his map section in the back of his Bible. Uh, He was a man of the law. He doesn't cheat or steal or lie. He is faithful to his wife. He's a philanthropist. He is financially generous. He was well known for his volunteerism. He's a model of holiness. He's the guy you want to have over to your house for dinner. He's the person you want in your church. He's the person you want in your small group Bible study. He's the person you want to be in some sense, right? He looks like he has it all together. Who wouldn't want what he has going on? Now compare him to the tax collector the one we are probably sympathetic towards uh, when we read the parable. Tax collectors were crooked and dishonest, but worse than all else, they were collaborators with the enemy. Absolute and utter traitors. That was the tax collector to the Jews in Jesus' day. They collaborated with the Romans. They were making money for themselves at the cost of their fellow Jews. And it was so much so that Jews in that day were taught to avoid tax collectors. If you saw one coming down the street, you crossed the street and you did not make eye contact with them. You did not associate with them or anyone of their kind, even family members of these tax collectors. That's how much they were hated. These men could not even give financially in the synagogue. Not only that, if someone saw them in the synagogue, they could have them removed. They could have them kicked out. And so, as a result, most of these tax collectors hardened their hearts. And they became embittered and disinterested in anything to do with God. And we see in the next chapter of Luke, in chapter 19, that Zacchaeus climbs up into the sycamore tree, and it says because he was very small stature, but part of me actually wonders if it was because it was for his own safety, because they would have seen the tax collector and done something to him. 
these two men, make up the two extremes of Judaism in that day, the pinnacle of religion and the epitome of wickedness. And so like our question at the beginning, if these two men were presented to people in the streets and you were asked the question, which one of these men would go to heaven? I think more often than not, people would say the Pharisee. He seems righteous, and beyond his religious standing, he hasn't hurt anyone while the tax collector is taking advantage of his own people. The Pharisee goes up to the temple to feel good about himself. People that say they like to go to church because it makes them feel good about themselves, that could be kind of a frightening statement. Not that we want people to feel bad at church. Church should bring you joy. As Kevin was saying, it's the community gathered together with the hearing of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel and the singing of the gospel. But it can be easy to use church as a way of covering up our deep-seated issues and convincing ourselves that we are fine. Like the way we probably all heard the reading this morning of this passage, and we may have said to ourselves, thank God that I'm not like this Pharisee who is full of himself and looks down on others. Now, you have to admit, Luke is really brilliant in the way that he knits this chapter together, the way he puts this chapter together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is absolutely blowing away our preconceived notions. He's getting rid of our uh, expectations. What 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 we're expecting to hear from the text is totally different. Look at the next little section in verse starting in 15, and we'll look at this a bit more next week. But Jesus has just told the disciples about how not to look down on others in exaltation of self, but to see yourself in humility. And then the disciples are telling people who are trying to bring babies and children to Jesus to go away. He is sho- they're shooing them away. And Jesus says, no, I want to see them. He told us about the widow who would never have received justice and how God actually wants to hear the pleas and the cries of his people and answer them. Our final week, we'll see the the blind beggar who cries out to Jesus and everyone tells him to shut it, to keep quiet. And Jesus says, I want him brought to me. Every one of these stories and events, except for one, involves people who have absolutely nothing to commend themselves. They are all weak. Widows, babies, a blind beggar. And yet each time they are told to come. Are you beginning to get a better picture of what kingdom life looks like? Are you beginning to see what kingdom life is requiring? Not that you be a widow or a baby or a blind beggar, but in terms of your understood position before God. In fact, next week we're going to look at another person who refuses to humble himself before God. Back to the parable for today. 
We've now looked at uh, our two men from what the world would have seen from the outside, what their perspectives would have been. But what reveals the conditions of the hearts of the two men is their prayers. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The ESV says the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. This is problematic. He is not supposed to be standing by himself. He should be praying with the rest of the congregation. Why is he standing by himself? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, when he is teaching his disciples about prayer, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. He is standing by himself either because he thinks more highly of himself or lower of himself. And so we read on to see what the answer is. Thank you, God. Oh, wonderful start. That I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. No, he thinks more highly of himself and lower of others. We think this is the shocking part of the parable, right? This is the shocking. How could the Pharisee say these things? How could he think these things? But we shouldn't. This is, this is not the shocking part of the parable. The, the Pharisee would have actually, in reality, prayed similar prayers. In the Talmud, one of the uh, central texts for the Jewish tradition, there are uh, prayers in it that sounded just like this. Here's one of them. Thank you, God, that I am Jew, not Gentile, a man, not a woman, and educated, not ed- uneducated. That is in the Talmud. It's not that the Pharisees did not believe in grace. The Pharisees believed that the grace of God was that initiating grace in the covenant. They believed that ultimately it would have to be grace to get them all the way to God. They knew that they couldn't do it all alone. They they prayed that God's grace would be sufficient enough for them on judgment day, but But the Pharisees believed that they were the ones to get themselves most of the way, and then God would carry them the rest. This is the Pharisee's problem. He's looking at the part he has done for what he thinks is his salvation, instead of looking entirely at God for salvation. Look at his prayer. And he implements two tools to cover himself. First, legalism. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Not only is he doing what he is required, he's doing more than that. He fasts two times a week, which is double what he is required to do. Keep in mind, that requirement is a Jewish tradition. It is not in God's law. In fact, Jesus condemns the practice uh, when it is used as some sort of way to merit favor with God. And he gives a tenth of everything when all that was required was a tenth of food or animals. He is a, a super Pharisee, and he knows it. 
That's why he stands away from the rest of those in the temple. He's covering up his real issues by focusing on what he does right. It's like uh, the chef uh, who gets a bad review because his food is terrible. And he keeps telling them how wonderful the ambiance in the restaurant is and how hard he worked to create this ambiance and how diligently he worked to pick out just the right tables and chairs and to get the lighting right and to get the color scheme right. And yet his food is poison. We can do this. We can do this. We can do this easily. We develop patterns to cover up whatever God is trying to say to us. We develop patterns that are ritualistic. We look at the outside world as if we are disciplined, even denying ourselves certain things. And we follow these petty, often man-made rules to help us feel better about ourselves. And we avoid being confronted by the real issues that God is trying to speak to our hearts in our lives. The second tool he uses is comparison. The I thank you that I'm not like others strategy of self-justification. The issue for the Pharisee in the tax collector is not whether they were like each other. It's what they're like before God. The issue this morning is not that you are better or worse than the person sitting next to you or the person you came to church with. The issue is not that the people in the front row are better or worse than the people in the balcony or the back row, though some of you might make that argument. (laughs) The issue is what does your life Look like before God who sees all and knows all, not before man. These are such amazing tools of the enemy. Comparison, to get you comparing your life to someone else, someone apparently better off or worse off than you so that you can feel better or worse about yourself. And legalism, to come to church routinely in worship and find in good things and beneficial aspects of church life, whether it be financial giving or fasting or some other aspect, and to use these things as a covering which prevents us from facing the reality of our condition before God, what God is speaking to us, what he's trying to tell us and make us feel better about ourselves. You see, the Pharisee felt good about himself, but his feelings did not reflect the condition of his soul. Could this be possible? Could it be possible to come in Sunday after Sunday and feel good about ourselves? What if the way you feel does not represent how you are? then everything we use to make ourselves feel good about self, legalism, comparison, all of these are preventing us from the very confrontation that we require if we are ever going to deal with the conviction that it is at the very core of our lives. 
Now let's look at the prayer of the tax collector. But the tax collector stood at a distance. We saw earlier with the Pharisee that he stands at a distance because he thinks more highly of himself and low of others. This tax collector sees himself so low that he stands at the way back and he can't even look to heaven because he's so humbled in the presence of the righteous and holy God. He beats his breast and cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And his prayer is not a comparison like the Pharisee. He doesn't say, make me more like that Pharisee up there who has his life altogether. His comparison is in his posture. He cannot stand with the assembly nor even lift his eyes to heaven. His comparison is not with man. It is before God. He doesn't belong in the temple according to the Jews and to himself because of his sin. And yet he doesn't know where else to go. He doesn't come in with a a list of all the good things that he has done, regardless of how big or small they may be, like our legalistic Pharisee does. The only legalism that this man knows is that he falls short of the law of God. He cannot measure up. And he has been struck with the judgment of God, with the reality of that judgment. And he has been struck by the gap that is between a holy God, a righteous God, and himself, a tax collector. He knows who he is. He knows who he is, that he is a sinner. And so he comes to the only one who knows who can have mercy on him. And he doesn't presume on God's mercy. All he knows is that he is a sinner standing before that righteous king, standing before the righteous God. Now, this word mercy in the original language is interpreted propitiate. The only other time that this word is found in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, he, Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. The word propitiation has to do with justice being satisfied. It's not that just forgiveness is given. But there's a penalty. It's it's that somehow, some way, God's justice has to be fully satisfied. It is what is pictured on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. Funny enough, it's the only day that's required for fasting, mandatory under the law of Moses, of which this Pharisee is fasting 70 times a week. But it is what is pictured on that day when the high priest sprinkles the blood on the altar. The mercy seat, the propitiation seat. And based on the blood being poured out from the innocent animal, God's wrath was stayed against his people from their sin for one year. And again and again, every year, the high priest has to go into the Holy of Holies 
and offered the blood of the animal for the sins of the people so that God would not pour his wrath out on the people. That is why this man, probably standing at the back, looks at the altar and he sees the blood stains on the altar and he understands that it should be his blood on that altar for the sins he has committed. That in God's economy, death is required. While our Pharisee is off telling God about all the good things he has done. The tax collector is saying, oh God, I'm ruined unless there is something outside of me that can make me right with you. There has to be something apart from me, an unrighteous man, who can correct this, who can deal with my problem. Then God, I have no chance of having any relationship with you. Of even, ref- of even feeling your love which is poured out. There's no way I could have eternal life because I am so distant. I am so separate from you. This chasm is too massive to cross. I see the blood and the cost and I am pleading, I am asking for mercy. He's not appealing to God's better nature. He's laying claim to God's own remedy for the sinner's predicament. And yet there are some people who are hoping to get God's good side when their time is up. I bet when God sees that I have been going to church regularly, I bet when God sees that I underline well in my Bible, I have no doubt that when he sees all the things that I give up to come here, all the things I give up to get to my small group, all the Bible studies I am in, all the volunteering I do, all the ministry I do, that when God calls me to account, I will present these things to him as my reason for coming into his heaven. At least it's better than this tax collector who will show up empty-handed and asking for mercy. Here's where the shock of this parable is leveled. Here's why I told you at the beginning, I said this was a shocking parable. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. This would have been the moment when the audience went completely silent and jaws dropped. The tax collector is justified, not the Pharisee. And so let me ask you, for those of you who have not Have you ever asked God to have mercy on you the way the tax collector did? This is a crucial question. And there can be lots of people in here who have come to church all their life. They baptized as an infant. They come to church every day, and yet they cannot answer this question. Have you ever asked God to have mercy on you the way the tax collector did through the provision of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus? 
Or are you seeking a righteousness like the Pharisee? Built on religious reputation and on your own moral accolades. What rock do you cling to as you think of eternity? Now, perhaps you came to God like the tax collector did a long time ago, and yet you have gone back to acting like the Pharisee. You have been declared justified, but you still want it to be about what you have done. It's difficult to consider ourselves totally helpless. And yet that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. It's not about what we have done, but what he has done for us. For when the tax collector would have seen those bloodstains on the altar, knowing that payment was due for his sins, we know it was the one who's telling this story who would carry that burden alone, making propitiation for us. Our high priest, our paschal lamb, So whether we are like the Pharisee, having not yet been justified, or we have started acting like the Pharisee, we know God is not one who takes pleasure in seeing men and women feel the weight of sin and death continually on their backs with no place to go. But rather like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, God longs for that weight to be lifted and set free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciles us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is not our own righteousness. I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified, declared righteous in God's sight, acquitted, set free. Why? Because of the amazing mercy of God. He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't leave us destitute. He has sent a Savior. Will you exalt yourself like the Pharisee, compiling a list of all the good things you have done and then comparing them to others? Jesus says, in doing so, you will be humbled. Or will you humble yourself before God, coming to an end of yourself? And putting that confidence in Christ. 
Jesus says, in doing so, you will be exalted because you have that covering of the Lamb who died to cover you, that you can have his righteousness. The kingdom of God, which is the ruling of God in your heart and mind, it has to start with an understanding of who we are and who God is. And apart from that starting point, you will continue to flounder and be lost. You have to see yourself through God's eyes. And you have to understand who he is, that he is loving, that he is merciful, that he is kind. He's not out to get you. He's drawing you to himself. He's drawing you to himself. Even if you have come to Christ and then you depart, he's drawing you back. He's drawing you back. Do not run from him. Do not run from him. It's not worth it. Let's pray. I think of that song that we sang last week, It Is Well With My Soul. And the line that Horatio Spafford wrote, the bliss of that thought, when my sin was hung on Christ, and I bear it no more, If there's somebody in here today who has not given their life to Christ, who has not come to God the way the tax collector is, recognizing that spiritual depravity we have. For Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize the uncrossable chasm, the impossible divide between a righteous and holy God and a fallen people. And in recognizing that, we know that there is good news. There is good news. That in the sending of the Son, there is life. In the sending of the Son, there is a crossing of the chasm. In the sending of the Son, there is life and hope and future and destiny and salvation and security for today and forever. Oh, let no one walk out of this place turning away from the good news. For those who perhaps have walked away, and feel that the chasm is too big, even though they had once given their life, would they remember how great Christ is, that his sacrifice isn't limited, but it's enough for all. It's enough for all. All who come to him, all who come to him, he will lose none. May we recommit our lives to him today. May we not be like that Pharisee standing on our good works.
for that will fail us. But let us be like that tax collector. Poor wretched souls that we are, claiming mercy, knowing that it's been offered freely. Oh, let it be. Oh, let it be. Amen.